I always felt like I had to inhabit this kind of mode of being, this role of performing, of doing for someone else. It took me until I was entering my 30s. The symptoms I began to then explode outward. I was exhausted. I was depleted. I was resentful. I was disconnected. I didn't have the language until I understood that, Nicole, the reason why you're all of those things is because you bring up this idea of self. You ask me, who am I? I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my body's needs even were. I didn't know where my limits were. I kept overstepping when I was tired, always showing up because my friend invited me, not allowing myself to say, no, my body is tired. I don't have the resources. Emotionally, always showing up for someone else. I didn't have space for myself. Hello, and welcome to a very special spiritual moment in my life in this episode of the How to Human podcast. My name is Sam Lamont. I'm the host. I'm a teen dad, college dropout, ex-meth head, person who's been sober for 11 years and really trying to figure out how to exist in this human life in a way that brings me the most contentment and fulfillment and joy every now and again, hopefully more than every now and again. This episode was two or three years in the making I reached out to Nicole LaPera, who you may know as the holistic psychologist, if you follow her on Instagram. A couple years ago, it was a long shot. And I just said, hey, we got this program. We're doing really well. There's a lot of amazing, interesting guests wanting to be on the program because of the depths of vulnerability and realness that we reach and the care that we put into these conversations. Would you consider being on the show? And she said, yes. So we had plans, it was going to happen, and then I had a huge dark night of the soul, which if you're a new listener, welcome. I basically got knocked out for over a year and a half, and it took restructuring this company, restructuring my life entirely, bringing on friends and business partners and interns and building this into a community affair rather than a solo art experiment. It was a slow journey of healing and getting back to my feet, but I am back on my feet, probably standing taller and stronger than ever before. And this missed opportunity always weighed on me and it terrified me. As we came back to the show, I always felt like reaching back out to Nicole, but I was terrified of rejection. I was terrified of our audience being smaller than it was before because of my year and a half away of our momentum being smaller than it was before because of the time away. I didn't know that we still had something very compelling to offer her, but I asked anyway. I told her what had happened. I told her, hey, I had dark night of the soul. Some might call it a nervous breakdown or some might call it a mysterious illness. For me, it was just about recovery. I didn't care what the labels were. I was just like, let's get this over with. And I told her, I said, our audience is smaller. We're rebuilding. We're kind of reforming the amazing community that we had. Do you still want to come on? And she said, yes. I always try to read as much of the guest's work as I can. So I needed some time to read her work. And by the time we scheduled, we scheduled the day before her new book comes out, which is a huge book release, How to Meet Yourself. I cannot believe that she gave us this time. So let me just tell you a brief bit about Nicole, if you don't know her. Nicole LaPera, better known as the holistic psychologist on Instagram, is a very heterodox thinker. This is somebody who has looked at the field of therapy 
and been willing to say, I think we can do things differently. I think we can structure things differently in a way that brings more healing. If you've been listening to the show recently, you know that I have so much love and respect for the mental health healers of the world, the psychologists, the marriage and family therapists, the licensed social workers, the psychologists, the psychiatrists. I am so grateful to live in a time with a robust mental health field of professionals. But I think that the problems we face as a society go beyond the scope of meeting once a week or once every two weeks or once a month. We have more therapists than we have ever had before and people are more desperate for, well, what I think is connection and community and stability and health and healing and a safe environment. We can't leave this up to the therapists. At some point, the people, the healies, which is actually all of us, surprise, surprise, even the therapists are in their own healing journeys, need to come together and start figuring out how we work on this societally, how we heal ourselves so we can be more useful to the communities that we're a part of. And Nicole's built a very interesting community she called the Self Healers. And Nicole's approach, which I think is really smart, is to put a lot of faith in the public and to say, hey, here are the tools we use. Let's start coming together and helping each other by using them. Kind of flies in the face of the credentialism and the age of experts that we're in right now, where if you don't have a certain piece of paper, you're not qualified to do something. But it does get back to something which I think is fundamental, which is that in each one of us, there is a capacity to help our communities and to help our friends and to help our loved ones. And that that journey of participating in the healing and community building of other people is actually part of our own healing journeys as well. The only way out of my suffering is of being of service. That is true time and time again. When I show up for my son as an amazing father, I am also healing my father wound. When I show up to friends of mine and dedicate my time and energy to just helping them with whatever they're going through, I am healing deep parts of myself that have been betrayed, that have been hurt in the past. So this idea of, hey, here's the toolbox. Let's start building together. I've, I trust that you can learn to hold a hammer. I trust that you can learn to hold a drill. Metaphorically speaking, it's beautiful and it's messy at times. Not everything is sterile and clinical and perfect, but I have so much respect for the guts that it took to stand out in the public and say, Let's do this. Let's try and find another way. Let's try and find a way to at least beef up what the therapists and social workers, psychologists and psychiatrists are trying to do in their private practices. Let's find a way to bring these into the coffee shops, the movie nights, the friends get togethers. In my office, I have a very important reminder on a letter board. It says, the good news, you're a hero. The bad news, you have to save yourself. I also have a life preserver that says, no rescue is coming. And it might sound kind of dark, but the reminder is that this is your lifetime. And on your journey, on your adventure, on your odyssey that you're on, and especially when you're recovering from some of the trials or harder times of life, the healing first and foremost is really in your hands. 
but I am so grateful for people like Nicole that give away their tools and tricks and strategies for healing, for coming together, for making this life as wonderful as possible, despite the tragic nature of life and the real reality that life is hard. Well, we're playfully calling this episode, Go Heal Yourself, because Nicole's work is first and foremost about putting these tools in the hands of everyday people. So I read Nicole's book, How to Do the Work in Preparation for this Conversation. The book's fantastic. It is throwing the kitchen sink at life. It's a collection of some of my favorite things that I've come along the way and a bunch of stuff that I've also never heard of and is new information to me. And it was a joy to read. I think we're going to be reading it in our book club. My plan is to read this not alone as I did for preparation for this interview, but to read it with a group of people dedicated to applying these tools together, reading it slow, taking our time with it, going over it and using it as an opportunity to connect with other humans and to share our thoughts with other humans. Her new book, How to Meet Yourself, I cannot wait to dive in as well. So without further ado, here is the holistic psychologist who is actually named Nicole LaPera. And here's our conversation. Go heal yourself. Hey, Nicole, thank you for being on my show. I want to give a tiny bit of backstory, which is that you were supposed to come on a couple years ago. And at that time, I was in a very different space. The podcast was on fire. We were on charts. We were having big guests. And I had this huge, complete meltdown. I call it a dark night of the soul. In your book, you refer to the dark night of the soul. So we have common language with that. It was a horrible illness that now looking back, I think was maybe psychosomatic or had to do with the mind first or the whole thing. But at the time I thought I was dying of the guests that we had lined up at that time. I've reached out to most of them, but taking a year and a half off, it was just like some of the steam died. When I reached out to you, I was basically like, Hey, we're not in the same place that we were a year and a half ago. Would you still like to come on? And just right away you were like, yeah, let's do it. So I just think that speaks volumes about you. And I know it might be uncomfortable for me to brag on you a little bit, but I just think that that was really cool. I appreciate it, Sam. And I appreciate you speaking so honestly of your experience, having had, I'm sure, different in many ways, though, very similar type of crashing down of the world around you. I can relate. And I know how helpful it is, I think, for some of us to share, especially when from the outside world, like you're saying, things appear different. We're on top of charts. We're successful in all of these ways. And ultimately, we're still a human. So thank you for actually looping back around and giving me this opportunity to take two with you. I appreciate it. So I start the same way every single time. Nicole, this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like, but who are you? What a, what a question to begin with. Who am I? That's a really, I think that is the journey of life is discovering who we each are. And interestingly enough, I think that sometimes even hearing or wondering how I'm going to verbalize an answer to that question, I think that really embodies some of the difficulty with defining ourselves. I don't know if the English language really does justice in terms of descriptors or how we can really box ourselves in. Because I think sometimes when we do describe ourselves, that's what we do. Right? We give ourselves a title, a label, maybe oftentimes around, wrapped around the role that we play in the life that we're living, though one of the main intentions with my new workbook in terms of meeting ourselves, is to create a bit of space for maybe 
the being that isn't so defined by the roles that so many of us are operating in. So who am I? Um, I'm a, a being that remains or attempts to remain connected to my heart. I believe that's where our guidance comes from between our gut and our heart, that deeper intuition. So I'm an evolving energetic creature who's always attempting to drop inward and give myself the language to answer that question by how I can describe myself and or show up. You may appreciate this, but I have a complicated relationship with Instagram, so I can't spend long on that app before, you know, I'm an ex-meth head and since getting sober 11 years ago, my addiction will find any way to check out. So I was familiar with your work because of who you were in the zeitgeist and because of the space that I'm in. People just send me your posts all the time. I get the curated <laughs> holistic psychologist of it must be the best of the best because people are just like, you have to see this. <laughs> and so I, I knew who you were, but to get the opportunity to really do the deep dive into your work and to get to know you as an author was so enriching. And I know that for most people, they might think of you as somebody who's on Instagram first, but because I didn't know you that way, I just got to know you as an author. And I loved the book that I read, which was How to Do the Work. It got recommended a couple months ago on my book club. Somebody wanted us to read it. And I think that we absolutely need to go back and read it as a group. So we can just dive right in. One of the things I found really interesting about your method and about your modality is it's created a lot of waves. You're heterodox. It was really interesting for me to read the criticisms of you, which mostly come from people in the field who are afraid of what would happen when you put the healing in the hands of the people who are trying to heal. And I love traditional therapy. I've had a, a therapist, different modalities for seven, 17 and a half years. But one of the things that I think we both agree on is the current system is not meeting the need. And people are getting sicker and sicker and an hour a week, if you have the money to do an hour a week, is not going to catch up if you're in a toxic environment. What you've done, which is basically to say, here are the tools that we use in this field, and here are the tools that I've gathered from outside the field that work. Let's find a way to have you help facilitate your own process. I think it's terrifying to people. I think it's, it, there's obvious ways that it could go wrong, right? But at the same time, when you're thinking about what the world needs right now, it's for people to say, I think we should try something radically different is very needed. So may maybe you could talk to me about your process of figuring out when you wanted to go from, hey, come into my office, see me once a week, to I am not impacting enough people fast enough and people are not able to catch up. And when I send them off into the world and they come back next week, they've completely regressed because their environment has pulled them back in. And you could maybe tell me a little bit about that process, because it must have been, I imagine, terrifying to be at, that, to be at odds with the field. Yeah, and you're, you're really kind of describing what I would live week after week with these individuals in that, that practice that I used to run in Philadelphia was, was just that, um, increasing amounts of insight, maybe even action plans. I always kind of thought of myself as thinking about how to translate what we were talking about in session how to give the clients that I was working with tools to carry outside of session. Yet week after week, I was met with just that. I mean, the number one complaint, if you will, was I'm stuck. Um, I was having people, again, with so much awareness, even feeling even more shameful 
at witnessing themselves or experiencing themselves still so stuck. And to speak to your point, um, in terms of not only did it become a questioning or a wondering in, in terms of accessibility and what's happening in these treatment rooms, really highlighted to me how much of human life and all of these habits and patterns that we're embodying exist like you're sharing outside of those treatment rooms, embed it in our relationships, embed it in our environments or our context, whatever they may or may not be. And what I'm referencing and how to do the work really dives into that whole subconscious or really simply habitual part of our neurology. I now can make a case in terms of our body's physiology and our nervous system reaction, how powerful, let me start there, that space is. So what I was seeing was so much awareness, you know, coming from a very conscious, intentional place. And yet when we shift out of that, those habits are at the ready. The environment around us is challenging us in very real ways. And before we know it, we do then return, regress, feel badly, slide back into patterns that so many of us have accumulated over time that we now know evidence does not serve us. So I really sought to understand first what is going on here. And when I understood that the subconscious is, is directing quite literally our autopilot, as a lot of us like to or have heard it referred to as every moment of our waking day. And for me, that highlighted the need for support then for consciousness-based tools outside of that treatment room. And even more so, um, as I began to evolve my theory to include the body, to go online and begin to share, you know, what I was coming to terms with, my own healing journey and the way that I was utilizing now my mind and my body to create change in my own life, I was met with how universally resonating this stuckness was, these concepts were, and really understood then, you know, terms of accessibility and Obviously, I live here in the United States, and like you're sharing, if we even have access to, if we even have the resources to, and it really came to my awareness, it was not even a matter of how many can I impact, though that was, of course, part of my rationale as I was seeing the wait list to work individually with me, you know, gathering steam, a lot of individuals on it. I was really wondering what's going to happen with all of those in other countries who don't have the opportunity to have these holistic, grounded supports or who are living in unsafe communities and contexts. So teaching people to empower themselves. And I would be lying if I said when I first created the account and went online to share my story, I was fearful in a lot of ways. I was for the first time sharing me and coming through a system that very much taught us not to be a human in that room. I, I was concerned of how it would be to be presenting myself as a psychologist who's struggling on her own accord. And of course, my concern was, well, how will my colleagues, what will they think of me? And while, of course, there is some, you know, concern, I do think I agree with you, it comes out of fear of uncertainty of the unknown and again, of a lack of awareness. I know for the most part what a lot of us came through and what we were taught in our schools. And I know what I'm sharing is, is different in a, in a lot of ways, though what I have received from professionals more than criticism is, is overwhelming support. I'm hearing from people in all nooks of the world who are coming to the same awareness, feeling like a disempowered helper support in the room and beginning to understand why on their own and again, shift very similarly their practice into this more holistic model of wellness. The, the model of going to an office once a week is so broken. It really has to meet the culture. It has to come from the community that you build around you. And if your community is sick and the people around you are sick, it doesn't matter what supplements you're taking what doctors you're going to, it, there's not going to be any way to catch up. One of the 
things that that makes me sad about the modern way that professionals and I know there's a lot of therapists who follow me so I'm not trying to cast I'm not trying to shit on the profession but I am just trying to highlight ways I think that the people doing this work could meet their clients better is there's this approach that they take that I think is is really based in an ego and you know the people who founded this really wanting to be special but in that you cannot be a human and you can't be a mentor and you can't be a friend. And some of my favorite psychologists who I, you know, I collect therapists as friends, basically. I know mm-hmm. how twist, twisted they all are <laughs> deep down. <laughs> but a couple of them now have stopped taking on clients as a therapist and are taking them on as a coach because they're going, listen, I can't meet you where I want to meet you as a therapist, as a licensed therapist. And I want to be more of a mentor. It makes me sad that we have to have this big barrier and that you like we've lost the intergenerational connection right where you you have elders and you have people older than you and you're constantly involved in people younger than you and what we've kind of done is we've replaced that role with like paid professionals and i i don't think it fills the same gap the same spiritual gap i couldn't agree more and i think you know what what becomes dangerous is when we don't share who we are we And I very much trained in the psychoanalytic model, which is very Freudian based. I mean, we were taught to be that literal blank slate, to be so, you know, removed of everything that makes me me in that room in service and theoretically for a long time. I mean, there was a long time where I considered training to be continuing my training to be a psychoanalyst. Theoretically, it made sense on some levels, though I think in practice what it opens the door to, and I meet this all of the time, I think there's so much healing in me sharing of my own journey to relieve that shame. Because when we're not sharing our individual you know, struggles and concerns as the human on the other side of the therapist's role, that blank slate allows so much interpretation. And I imagine, and I hear now from community members, relief. Oh my gosh, Nicole, you're, you struggle too? And you still struggle? Right? When we're not sharing who we are, we do open the door for this idea that we are this all-knowing being beyond the point of you know, human struggle and human existence. And I think we then create a circumstance for our client to project that idea onto us. Like we have answers that they need, we need to gift those people and we need to kind of outsource is the language that I like to use. And I think we have created, you know, a circumstance in our society at large where a lot of us have been conditioned to outsource, to feel like we don't know ourselves, our wants, our needs enough or what we need to do to feel safe, to heal or whatever it might be. So we do endlessly seek that knowledge from someone else outside of us. And again, this isn't to say, because I do know a lot of times it's misinterpreted that I am outright telling people not to get therapy or to go in a room (laughs) if you have access to these people. And that's absolutely not the case at all. What my hope is, though, that you can become a collaborative participant meaning that the human in the room can have some space that they actually do know their experience, maybe even beyond the person that they are, you know, tasked with supporting them to be part of the conversation. Because again, when we are in, when we are deferential to someone else and we have the idea that they know better than we do, a lot of us are just keeping ourselves disempowered. Another thing I want to bring up on the subject too, is a lot of people feel like when you get a therapist, like they're all the same. They're all created equal. And that's not true. It's just like everything else. It's like a business partnership or a relationship. And in a sense, you're, you're, you're dating, you know, in a way you're building a relationship and to really 
treat it like you would any other purchase for yourself. For me, one of the funny things I think is missing from the field is actually a sense of capitalist exchange. And like, hey, I'm going to invest in myself. What are you going to do for me? And if you ask your therapist, hey, we're going to spend a year together. I'm going to spend $12,000 on this. What, what can I get from this? And they're like, well, go to someone else. I go to a therapist now who says like, what do you want to work on? I was like, I want to thrive in a way where you pay for yourself because me doing better <laughs> helps me pay for this bill. And he's like, cool. That's what we'll yeah. do. No, I was going to say, I, I couldn't agree more. I do think, you know, giving people the information like you're beautifully doing right now, Sam, that, you know, therapists are humans and not only are they a human, so they might have a different personality, a way of being in the room that you might feel more or less comfortable with. That's really what we're looking for. Can I walk into a space and while it will be new and unfamiliar and, you know, making myself vulnerable and sharing, but can I see a scenario where I can fully be me? And the reality of it is we feel different levels of comfort based on different people and how they are and how they present in the room. And then, of course, there's a big conversation in terms of, well, how will they be working with you? You know, what did they learn in school? And of course, I'm referencing the large majority of us, at least in the clinical psychologist world. So those of us who have the PhD after our name have been trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, have this idea, right? And again, it, it is, I think, part of, and I devote a whole chapter on how to do the work to the power of our mind. I entitle it the power of belief and how all of these aspects, you know, in our mental world do impact us. And that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. The framework is based on that idea that if I change my thoughts, I'll change the way I feel and I'll give myself an opportunity to then react or respond differently in the world around me. And Yes, of course, while that's part of the story, what that level of training is missing is the body, the body that's sending so many messages, if not more, up to that brain that simply can't white knuckle or overcome. If my body is telling my brain a different message, unfortunately, my brain is going to listen to my body, not the will or the intention, the desire to do something differently. We really do have to employ the body, which is why I shift it the way that I was working into a much more holistic approach. So in addition to, you know, vetting humans in the room in terms of how do you make me feel? Can I imagine a place where I'll feel safe to begin to share with you my actual struggles? Because that's a very real experience too. I've been in a treatment room and imagine many others and I've heard from clients of other therapist experiences they had where they didn't feel honest or safe to be honest, where they did almost, you know, censor out actual things that they were struggling with in fear of what their therapist, you know, might think. So really making sure that you're finding someone that you can imagine, because it doesn't, for a lot of us, happen immediately, but you can see yourself becoming more comfortable, safe to share what's really going on, but also maybe to, you know, like you're saying in a very capitalistic way, but inquire, well, what will our work look like? You know, will we include, and as far as I'm concerned, it's important to include, will we be talking about our body and the role that my body is going to be playing? You can give me all of the insight and awareness in the world, but if I don't have those tools to embody a new response in those moments outside of this one hour a week, then I'm going to really create a situation where I'm just stuck all the same. One of the areas I see you really putting your weight into the, the possibility of recovery be real. And one of the areas that I think your work really speaks to people is it's not this fatalistic view. And you're not saying, hey, cool, let's rubber stamp you with something. It's going to feel great because now you have a language to describe it. And that's who you are for the rest of your life. And I think one of the most radical, dangerous thoughts that you have is, 
hey, you know, I don't know how far this healing thing can go. And let's let's really try to look to what we know and look to this, the research and figure out like what what is possible in the world of recovery with ADHD and, and with depression and with anxiety. And as somebody who is currently the healthiest I've ever been, I really feel like I got a disservice by by getting labeled and by the kind of modern idea that like, hey, this is you have severe clinical depression. You will have this the rest of your life. This is how you can treat it. And that's it. That's the science. And what actually made the biggest impact was to not be such an isolating introvert. So the biggest thing that made any difference is I had a brilliant therapist who just said, you know what? Listen, I'm not supposed to tell you what to do, but I think you either you go get a real job or you take on a business partner because you being alone in the studio is not working out, man. And I took on a business partner and then we took on another business partner and then we took on interns. And as the office filled up, I realized, yeah, I really do like time to myself, but I'm learning the, the benefits of being a social animal and being an extrovert. And that has nothing to do with medication or with therapy, but I do track my energy and my mood every single day to try and see if I can recognize patterns. And it's, it's laughable. It's laughable that if somebody had like the change this could have made in my life earlier, if I had known that like what, what I'm actually sick with is isolation. What I'm actually sick with is I, I think, you know, I have to live life a certain way when really the thing that made the biggest impact was nothing to do with the traditional approaches. Yeah. I really, really appreciate you saying that. And you know, kind of shifting from a more limited view of what is possible into, you know, one that is po possible and, you know, very similar to you. While for me, it wasn't depression. For me, it was anxiety. I was quite literally the little girl scared of the world. I would hide under tables. I wouldn't be able to interact with strangers. I was the embodiment of anxiety. And before long, when I chose to uh, seek out treatment, which was in my early 20s, I you know, not so, no surprisingly, not surprisingly received a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, of panic disorder, because, you know, panic attacks set in at that time. Um, I didn't necessarily share all my OCD like coping mechanisms that I developed in childhood, which had to do with rearranging obsessively my environment, with obsessively scanning myself for, you know, stains and things like that, because I was shameful and I didn't speak those in a treatment room, though I imagine if I did, I probably would have had those labels, you know, tacked right on to me as well. And what was confusing was if I looked up at my family, I saw so much similarity. I saw so much anxiety in them, similar coping mechanisms. And um, it can be, I think, understandable that many of us do believe in that more limiting version where we come to have the idea that we are genetically, you know, predetermined to have whatever it is, you know, wrong with us, whatever category of symptoms. Um, we might see very similar expression in our family. And before long, we do then create a circumstance where we feel limited, where we can't see any possibility of having a different experience. And while I love how you're kind of acknowledging the benefit for some of us having labels, having a community with whom we can relate around that same struggles around that label can be relieving. I think for others, it can be very, very limiting. And again, I think some of this is really grounded in the information that for a very long time has been given. You know, we were for a very long time in the medical community, at least of the belief of that genetic deterministic model where we had the idea that if we studied our genes, which we attempted to do, that we would find actual DNA that codes for all of 
you know, the symptoms and the experiences and the diagnoses that humans have. In reality, that's not the case at all. We have genetics, but they are always actively interacting with environments. And now we have more language to explain that similarity. Of course, I'm similar to my family because we're all repeating the same interpersonal environments, which are impacting then the genetic expression. So for me, I was very limited. I would have probably read books about people, you know, healing from anxiety. I mean, like, this is not possible for me because I have this genetic component and I can't see that possibility of having a different experience. And it wasn't until I understood anxiety, even depression, like you're sharing as a result of many different factors, our nervous system dysregulation, neuroinflammation, and, and other factors that are contributing to then that expression. When we have other factors at play now, now we can begin to make choices. We can change our circumstances. We can change to some of us, the best of our abilities, our environments so that then ultimately over time, we give ourselves the opportunity to change our symptoms and to change the way we're showing up and experiencing the world around us. One of the ways I love about your approach is, is let's just go to the whole book. The book is throwing the kitchen sink at it, right? It's like a collection of everything that you've found over the years that works. In one book, I kept laughing when I got to a section and go like, oh my God, it has this too. It has this too. It felt like some of the, you know, as somebody who's a seeker who has to read, wow, this is, this is not a book. It's a library, right? It's like a collection of all the things, some of which I didn't know, but a lot of them that took a lot of time to gather and to test. And my favorite thing about your approach is that it starts with the self. And it, it's like the theme that I see running through your work is to look out for self-betrayal. And when I look at my expression of what we would call mental illness or not being functional or not being an emotional adult, it really starts with, it starts with some form of self-betrayal. It starts with some form of there was many opportunities along the road for me to notice what was going on and me choosing to ignore it. And there's a ton of different ways that I learned to ignore it, but you know, in wrestling, the feelings of your body had to be ignored, right? And it was very, it was very much like you can go much harder than you think. And that's a great skill to have in a combat situation. <laughs> but at some point, a mentor of mine told me, Sam, your toughness, your resilience is not helping you because you're, you're missing all the signs. My current CBT therapist, which I've been doing for less than a year. It's a brand new modality to me. I love pulling out the crayons, as I call it, with my, with my CBT therapist. But when I feel like spiraling, rather than it being treated as like, well, you have depression, so you're going to spiral. But for the therapist to say, what's the benefit? What's, the, what, what's going on right now? And for us to go down the list, my favorite one that came out during one of these sessions was, you get a shitty vacation. Right. If you crash and burn, you get a terrible vacation when you're in bed, moaning and groaning and hating life, but your body's still getting rest. My therapist was basically like, can you plan a vacation like a week from now? And then you could do it on your own terms and you could still get through this week and get your job done and not spiral. That's the theme that I see coming through your work is and that's what I think is the most powerful resonant factor of your work is that you're not saying, hey, this is what you need to do. You're saying. Let me help you learn how to reconnect to what's true with you. And I don't know what's true for you. I can take guesses. I can kind of 
I can sort of figure it out, but I'm going to show you how to reconnect with yourself. And that's the starting place. That's where you begin. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, when we're creating, you know, space, I think what you're beautifully describing, Sam, is the adaptation. You know, oftentimes these symptoms, even these habits, these very characterological, I'm putting up the air quotes, of course, ways of being have had a purpose. They've, they've been a function, usually all around creating safer connection in an environment, again, where that wasn't necessarily available to us by just being who we are. And I was giggling earlier, just hearing, shifting into self-betrayal now. And I was giggling earlier when you were sharing about, you know, kind of needing, being an introvert or just needing kind of a little more interaction because my journey actually looked a bit more opposite of that. Even though in childhood, I was extremely painfully shy. On or around high school, I actually shifted into super busy social mode. And what I've learned, you know, over time about myself is that always keeping myself busy, whether whether it was endless accomplishments, checking that last box. I mean, even heard me share with you, I was going to go be a psychoanalyst, which mind you is another eight years of training after my already 10 years in my clinical psychology program, right? So whether or not I was endlessly driving myself to succeed professionally or personally, socializing, always being at the event, always being there available for my friends who needed me or whatever it might be, I was actually living in an act of self-betrayal by keeping myself always doing. And the function of that for me, again, began in early childhood where that was safest, always achieving, at least professionally, of course, in, in childhood, that was academically and athletically, which I was gifted in both. That was my way of attaining my mom's attention, which was limited because she herself was caught in her own survival mode, focused on the priority of the next stress at hand. Though when I was succeeding, when I was performing, when I was less the least stressed member of the family, my mom was available to me in a little way. So that action of doing then morphed into my my personal life where I always felt like I had to inhabit this kind of mode of being, this role of performing, of doing for someone else. And it took me until I was entering my 30s and the symptoms I began to then explode outward. I was exhausted. I was depleted. I was resentful. I was disconnected. And I didn't have the language until I understood that Nicole, the reason why you're all of those things is because you bring up this idea of self. You even, you know, asked me, who am I? I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my body's needs even were. I didn't know where my limits were. I kept overstepping when I was tired, always showing up because my friend invited me, not allowing myself to say, no, my body is tired. I don't have the resources. Emotionally, always showing up for someone else. I didn't have space for myself. So I think what you're beautifully and what this conversation is exploring, I hope for listeners, is some of us, our characterological way of being, this role, the helper, the caretaker, whatever it is that we identify with more often than not, for some of us, that might have been a role in service of something. There might be a function. And when we really talk about exploring who we are, I invite us all to begin to create space to explore who we are outside of these moments where I'm doing something. Who am I just in my self-expression as the being, the unique being that I am? And again, a lot of us, I do think our habits are functionable and have been the only way that we've been able to create safety, to feel connected, to feel worthy enough. I believe that, that looking at the issues coming up with your life and the feelings coming up that are maybe intrusive or catastrophic or and looking to them as clues into What's really going on is the, is the first way to stop the cycle of, I think what would normally be, you know, if, if you're 
feeling terrible and you're taking terrible care of yourself and you're getting terrible sleep and you're you have no schedule no no predictability for your body and you go and it gets labeled as depression or it gets labeled as it's like well of course you feel terrible like it makes sense or the anxiety that you had as a little kid which I actually shared there's we have a lot of weird overlap but I used to hide, I used to be terrified of break-ins like you were. And I used to hide like Home Alone style weapons under cushions and in places because I'd go to my mom and I'd say, my mom was a single mom and I'd say, mom, what do we do if there's a break-in? And she'd go, well, well, I think I have a tennis racket somewhere. I go, that's not good enough, mom. (laughs) You know, that's not good enough. And to not treat it as like, oh, well, that's silly. That's crazy. But to go like, there's a child right there who's seeking safety who really wants to know that there's not something that can wreck the life that we have. Or there's a human who's not satisfied with the, ex- the way that you're expressing yourself in the physical world. And you might think everything's hunky-dory, but there's a part of you that's not in alignment with that, that's not in alignment with eating junk food and treating your body like crap and you know not having a community. And you might, like, I think we give the brain too much credit that we say, like, you can really convince yourself that this is okay or that's okay. And it's just not working. Like, if, you know, some people can have lots of casual sex, but you don't really get to decide that. You have to learn who are you. And you might be somebody that doesn't, that that doesn't serve. And you can try and change the way you feel about it. But some part of you is going to go, I'm not in alignment with that. That's not the way that we're supposed to express ourselves. And when we think about, you know, having the space to be who we are, that really truly does begin in childhood. And the reality for a lot of us is we've lived a childhood where we weren't able to be for many different reasons separate, where we didn't have a parent that was able to be like, okay, this is what I think, feel, believe, you know, how I would react in this circumstance. And I know I'm different from you, child. Let me sit here, you know, as an open objective space and explore you, be curious, see who you are, help you see who you are. The large majority of us, again, of no ill intention, fault of their own, oftentimes because of what they were modeled and experiences that they have had in their own childhood, we become an extension of our parents where we are shaped directly or indirectly, where we, you know, attempt to share a thought, a feeling with our parents. And maybe we didn't have that safe, open space for just allow it to be what it is. Maybe we were urged not to be so dramatic, not to say that in public, not to do that thing because that'll translate to whatever fear, worry, or concern it is for our parent. Of course, this isn't about, you know, we do need structure and our parents' job is to keep us safe, but I do think a lot of parents blur that line and we do become an extension of our parents' own unmet needs. And until we have a parent, and this is a tall order, who based on their own childhood has been able to know who they are, tend to their own unique body, make sure that they're always calm, grounded, or more consistently than not calm, grounded, and regulated. Make sense of, again, emotions and stories and older narratives that they might be bringing from their childhood that are impacting these reactive moments and being a grounded presence. Only when that is the case can they then show up in that safe, objective, exploratory, curious space. And most of us, again, didn't have that parent. We've had dysregulated parents who didn't have the tools to make sure that they were that safe, guidant, guidant container. Um, and instead, again, we become an extension. We feel like we have to 
embody these roles. And then before we know it, that's the only way we know ourselves. And we might wake up well into our 20s, 30s, 50s, 60s. I mean, we have, I have a lot of older individuals in the community who are like, I don't know who I am. And I feel shameful because I'm up in years and I feel like I should. And, you know, my offer back is always compassion. How would you know? You've only ever played a role and understood yourself in this one way for so long. You haven't actually had the space or the safety or the tools to begin to have that own now curious process of exploration yourself. So for all of us who did not get that in childhood, I talk often in how to do the work about reparenting learning how to be that parent to ourselves now, learning how to identify what my needs are so that I can create that safe space to then over time begin to rediscover, well, who am I actually outside of what I do? As somebody who's really trying to shake up the culture, what are the areas that you want to really focus your efforts? Like when you, when you get somebody off the streets, they join your self-healers community. And like a lot of us are in this, kind of in these cycles of just going from stimulus to response, stimulus to response, stimulus to response. You wake up to an alarm clock, you drink your coffee, you go into the car, you go to work, you come home, somebody annoys you, you yell at the kids. <laughs> and when you're trying to break the mold and to start the process, where where are you first trying to shake people up and to, and to, to inject into their life and to say, hey, let's, like, this is the master habit that's going to bleed out into the rest of your life. This is where we start. I will sing from the rooftops from now to the day is long till probably no longer hear of that habit being consciousness, being able to see, just like you're beautifully describing, Sam, how habitual you are. Some of us are so blinded. I'm mean, think about a horse with blinders on that. Maybe they even are listening to you say this, right? Oh, you just wake up, you go about your day the same way. And they might not feel like, you know, even hear me say the word, you're habitual. We're all habitual creatures as humans. That might not land until you go view those very habitual patterns. Now, of course, many of us are very glaringly aware of the habits and patterns of our stuck points, but until we are conscious of them in real time, I like to simplify change into two steps, becoming conscious of what's happening and then making a new choice, not relying on that older ingrained habitual pattern, simply doing something different. That's not gonna happen if my autopilot is taken over. What's gonna happen next is the same predictable thing that has always happened next. So I will, again, shout co consciousness from the rafters, though, also acknowledging that it's it's just not just a concept. Um, for me, it was a concept I read for decades before I even began to speak of it. Now, oh, consciousness, we're conscious beings. I learned about mindfulness in my early 20s. That was all nice ideas. I never put it in action, meaning I never, A, saw how unconscious I was, and then I never gave myself the actual exercise of being that conscious being. So I would allow my autopilot to dictate and determine and you know or choose essentially for me what gets to happen next. So until we learn how to be in that observation, waking up, say, starting tomorrow morning and actually just observing, what are the first couple things that you do with your day? What do those morning habits look like? Do you have habitual reactive patterns in terms of emotions? Are there particular things that just get under your skin and result in you screaming or yelling? Or maybe you do something that a lot of us others do. If we don't scream and yell, we might detach ourselves, give people the silent treatment, not speak to you if I don't like it. What are those reactive patterns we can become conscious of? And if we're not conscious of them, what's likely going to happen next, whether we're talking about the first behavioral habits we do in the day or 
whether we're talking about the emotional habits that are coloring, you know, most of our relational worlds, if we're not conscious in those moments to actually make that other choice, our autopilot's going to determine it will make it for us. My friend Claire, who hosts a podcast called The Better Questions, who I love and just want to shout out as much as I can, she focuses on the the space in between knowing and doing. And that's specifically what I want to ask you about, because that's where so many of us get caught. Like if somebody's reading your book or they're watching your Instagram, they're curious and they're probably the type of people that have gathered a ton of information. I am a gatherer. I jokingly tell people I know everything I need <laughs> until the day I die. The problem now is to work on being in integrity and actually being in action and doing the stuff that I know works and helps. And when you're working with someone, that's that's like the critical moment, right? So many of the people that I know struggle are brilliant. And you know they have these massive horsepower brains. It's almost why they're able to perceive so many issues in their life is because they have this cerebral power. But when you're going, hey, look, this is where we start. This is the action that needs to happen. What do you do to inspire that change and to get people from going into that knowing space into that doing space and into the actual, it's going to be excruciating, but you got to sit down and focus for 25 minutes or whatever you're trying to help inspire. Very similar, um, I think, to this experience before I kind of get into the answer is I think some of us misinterpret even hearing a concept like consciousness. And I think, you know, another version of this kind of all-knowing, getting stuck in the knowing, is getting stuck in hyper-self-analysis. And in my opinion, all both of those actions, um, habits, often for many of us, go still into the bucket of, I'm still in my thinking mind, right? I'm analyzing in my thinking mind. I'm lost in thought about myself. That's what self-analysis is, right? Very similar to this, like, I'm lost in knowing. I might have a moment of all of this knowledge going through my head, right? Almost running rampant in my head. I'm still in my head. Right, The state of consciousness I like to describe as overhead lights on in a room. I can see my thoughts that might be there trying to endlessly self-analyze, trying to offer all the knowledge that I know. The act of consciousness, though, is an embodied state of being. Because just as much as I can see my thoughts, I can choose to refocus my attention outside of my internal world to my external world and to my environment. Maybe I don't want to look at my thoughts. Maybe I want to drop down and see how my body's responding. Is there tension? Is my breath changing? Am I indicating stress in any way in my body? That's what's, what consciousness is. So think of the lights on in a room. And again, I just wanted to offer that because I do think sometimes we confuse those two and we think that, and I get this question often, like, don't you ever just like take a moment to chill? Are you always endlessly healing and analyzing? And again, my answer <laughs> is, well, I hope not. Though, again, I want to offer for a lot of us, that became our safety. Endlessly learning keeps me yeah. safely distant from all of the overwhelming feelings in my body. Endlessly self-analyzing, lost in my mind in my spaceship, right? For me, ruminating, thinking, worrisome thoughts is safer than dropping in and feeling all of the overwhelming sensations and tension in my body that I've accumulated over time. So for a lot of us, these actions, what we think are in healing are actually just another version, though a sanctioned, culturally sanctioned one where we think we're doing the work. Really, though, we're just in that protective space of my mind, separate from, again, all of the overwhelm in my body. So shifting from knowing to doing is difficult. There's a reason why for decades I was away on my spaceship. I wasn't connected or attuned to my own body because, quite honestly, my body was overwhelming. 
Um, for some of us, we might be not hyperanalyzing our thoughts. We're so disconnected because our thoughts are too overwhelming, right? So we're endlessly distracted, scanning the external environment. All of that to me indicates, again, I'm not safe. I am not safe. So I'm doing, I'm scanning, I'm caught in learning mode because when it's really about dropping in, we do have to develop tolerance, right? We do have to develop the ability to actually be a present to what for a lot of us has been so overwhelming for such a long time. So there's a utility, I think is why I want to land on this answer here, in terms of being in that always learning mode, never doing. Because when I do try to re refocus my attention to drop in, it's overwhelming, it's scary, and it's unfamiliar. So it's safer to keep reading the books and not applying the books. It's safer to be in endless self-analysis as opposed to dropping in and saying, okay, well, what's really happening? Why am I distracting myself with overanalyzing the conversation or how I said what I said? Maybe because I'm feeling something in my body that that's keeping me at a safer distance from. So even those habits that I think, again, a lot of us think are in service or are in the direction of healing are another version of a protection against what might be very overwhelming beneath the surface. I love it. I feel like I just got caught in the Cartesian error of like <laughs> the separation of mind and body. I love the consciousness is embodied. And I think that's a good challenge for me as somebody who loves to live up here is to, you know, and loves to think of myself as a conscious being, but to go, if you really want to be conscious, you have to, you have to do it. But so when you're working with, with your community and your results-based community, from what I can gather, you don't just want to entertain people. You really want to do create change in the people that follow your work. What are, what are the ways that you inspire action, that you inspire people to really change the way that they do express themselves physically? So mapping on to those two kind of processes of change, right? We become aware We'll always, you know, every month we roll out um, in the self-healer circle, that is a new course, a new topic, really simply. So it's understanding, right, the new information. And I'm pausing on that part as well, because I think what's important, I think why the Instagram account, The Holistic Psychologist, was, you know, grew in, in followers and in community so quickly was, you know, my intention that I'm continuing to hone each and every, you know, moment I'm, I'm doing this work in communicating these concepts in a way that's understandable so that we can then take the next step, which is apply it. Because I've read, I'm, I'm a reader, much like yourself, it sounds like, and I've read so many books where, you know, most of which I'm saying aren't new concepts. I mean, you know, I'll just throw out the ego. The ego has been written about for, you know, eons, for as long as, you know, we, we've been human. Someone has been talking to some extent about the ego. But, you know, again, I've read about how the ego is described and it's confusing. I don't really know what that means, how I apply, what my ego is. What is that? How does that make sense to me? So in the community membership, and actually I'd mirror the same thing across all of um, the free social media content that I put out because I'm very committed to making this information and these tools accessible, even if you aren't having the resources available to be a part of the paid membership. Though in the community, it looks very the same. We talk about the concepts and then I each month we talk about how to integrate them in your life? What action plan, whether it's a guided meditation that I've recorded to take us through a guided exercise in whatever topic that we're exploring or some journaling prompts so that each individual can take their own self-exploration, leaving space, of course, for the uniqueness of all of the different individuals globally that are joining together at different stages 
of their healing journey in that process. But each and every month, again, whether or not you're in the paid membership or coming across the free content, those are my two intentions, communicating or translating information, these concepts into, into understandable chunks so that I can see them, become conscious of these concepts in my life, these habits, these patterns, whatever I might be talking about, and then giving me the opportunity to translate them into action plans. How do I apply this knowledge in this more embodied way to actually change then the way I'm showing up, what I'm feeling or whatever it might be? There's one part of the book that hit really close to home because it's like, it's just something I've never actually read before from anyone else. And I'm sorry that I'm getting a little choked up. When you talk about your memory, you're the first person I've actually read or heard that literally describes how my memory currently works. And it's really not fun as somebody who does like to read and wants to retain everything. But I am the same way where you described that. You can remember the feelings and how people made you feel, but you can't remember the specifics. And for me, it feels like I, uh, I'm asking, hopefully, that you've, you've uh, found something that's, that's working and, and helping in your current re- recovery. I really struggle. I keep a great journal. I take photos. I print them out. My journal is like my Instagram. It has photos and, and stuff so I can remember. But I feel like life slips through my fingers in a way because of this, this memory issue. And for you know, to smooth the relationships over in my life, I tell them, oh, well, you know, I did, I did heavy drugs for 10 years or, I, I, you know, I took some big headers, which is true. I did have some, you know, pretty traumatic hand injuries. But the, the way that I do store some things makes me realize, like, I don't think this is a mechanical thing. I think that there's something else going on here. And it's like, it's, the recovery from that is really, really important to me. I would like to believe that it's possible to be able to get my memory back because there was a time when I had a great memory. I appreciate um, you sharing your own personal experience because for a very long time, Sam, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. When I entered into high school and I would start to be around friends who were, you know, remembering, you know, aspects of their childhood, maybe even asking me about them. And it was largely blank and it wasn't necessarily anything I spoke about per se. It would obviously come up though in the context of these relationships where I'd be with friends like, oh, remember last month or remember when we did this, that, the other thing? And it became a running joke that, oh, Nicole has no memory. Oh, Nicole. And using substances myself at a very young age, I started smoking pot when I was 12 years old, started drinking, abused pharmaceuticals and did all the things. So, you know, I very much so, oh, I messed up my brain. It's my fault. And, And a lot of these memories, of course, when I was in my teenage years and college years with my friends that I was sharing, I was drinking. So I'm like, oh, okay, I must have been too drunk that night to remember. Oh, Nicole just, uh, I didn't have the understanding. And if I'm honest, I'll share with you. I, I came upon, it was probably my late 20s uh, researcher, I think it was in the UK, who studied something called autobiographical memory disorder. I never heard of that. And she was seeking samples of humans who had this particular autobiographical memory disorder. Long story short, I applied to be part of the study and I was devastated when I didn't hear back. Because I thought, oh, I must be this unique, you know, unicorn who has something structurally wrong in their brain and they just lack memories. What else could explain this? Until I understood the nervous system, stress, trauma, and the impact that that has. In addition to cortisol, the more cortisol, which is our main, one of our main stress hormones, the more cortisol that we have washed through our, meaning that all of us have cortisol, we need cortisol to activate our fight or flight response to deal with stress. Um, the more more though we have consistently in our system, cortisol impacts a part of our brain called the hippo- hippocampus, which 
is one of the areas that plays a role in memory. So now I have a, a bit of understanding in addition to the fact that I know that there was a lot of cortisol present. I know from the moment I was in my mom's belly in utero that there was a lot of cortisol present because I know how stressed my mom was. I know what circumstances she was living. I was actually just recently told that when she started to have morning sickness, she didn't think she was pregnant because she was 42. My older sister was 15 at the time. My sister, my brother was 18, so I was definitely not planned. She thought I was stomach cancer. So talk about stress and worry, cortisol in my system. I'm imagining impacting the neurology in my brain. Then I learned that all of the different states of nervous system reaction when we are dissociated, when our best attempt to keep ourselves safe isn't to fight the threaded hand, isn't to leave. I was a child. I couldn't leave my home environment, is to shut ourselves down. When, I'm a, when I was away on my spaceship, I wasn't present enough. The best way I could describe it is not necessarily lost in thought, almost having a blankness of thought. I'm physically present. I might even be able to be holding a conversation on with you, but I'm so blanked out. I'm so distracted or dissociated somewhere else, not distracted, dissociated somewhere else that I'm actually not present to what's going on to encode the memory. And what's important to understand and you even relating to the feelings, I could walk into that bar and my friend could tell me I've been there before and I don't remember the night, but I'm like, oh yeah, feels familiar, right? That's because we are a living memory. We all have the memory. We just not might, we might not have the ability to recall. Our mind and body is going to respond, react as if I was there before. I get that sense of familiarity, but I won't be able to recall it. So now that I have the language, I have a way of understanding why I don't have memories from early childhood. And if I'm honest, I still, I can now have a sense of my different states of consciousness that there are still moments where I am more blank. I am more dissociated. And those might be the moments where if I'm watching a television program and that happens, whether I'm lost in thought or just again somewhere else, I won't remember or hear even what was said on the television. And it can be very frustrating for people around us. I have my partners that were like, did you hear that? And I'm like, oh no, I was, you know, somewhere else entirely. And that can, I think, give us the explanation for why. And as I began to talk about my lack of memory, um, seeing and hearing from people like yourself, from the many of us who similarly don't have that ability to recall, but it's living in our mind and in our body. So the next question I often get asked is, well, do you need those memories? Do I need to be able to recall what happened? And ultimately the answer is no, because your body does remember. You're going to see it in your habits, in your patterned way of reacting in those moments that will give you the opportunity to then make those new choices now. Because healing, in my opinion, isn't about going back to the moment in time, not even necessarily reimagining it differently. While that could be helpful for some of us, it's how do I change that lived memory right here, right now by embodying, again, a new experience, a new choice in this moment in time. One of the topics that I am selfishly most interested in is self-sabotage and that pull back to the familiar, which your book covers actually quite a, quite a bit, but it's something that I see wreaking havoc in my own life and I see it wreaking havoc in lots of my loved one's life. And it, it really is, is hard because it, the more you go on living with this issue of you know, getting yanked back, the, the less hope you have for making change. And you end up with these, this long laundry list of all the things that you've tried to change that you weren't able to change. And when you're 
trying to take on a new task, you might not even start. So in, in that topic of like, everybody has a homeostasis and they have like a, a base point where they're familiar and they're familiar might be in like abusive chaos. And it makes no sense why you would want to like, why some part of you would pull you back into abusing yourself or into treating yourself terribly or into crashing and burning all the progress that you've made. When you take inventory of yourself and when you go, you know what, I think I would like to be more this. I think I'd like to do this more. How do you approach that challenge of that there will be this gravity, there will be this magnetism back into the familiar? How do you take that on in your own world? I think what is most, you know, most helpful for me is is two parts. And the first part is to remember how normal it is to normalize that the unfamiliar will always feel uncomfortable because the way that we are evolutionarily wired, our subconscious will always interpret that which is not known, the unfamiliar, a new choice, a new opportunity as possibly threatening because we don't yet have the information. We haven't lived that particular experience enough to get to predict what comes next. And to keep myself safe, I love to have a predictable world around me. And this is where it can be very counterintuitive with many people like, well, gosh, I lived decades of predictable negative consequences. You think, you know, I definitely don't want to continue to have those, to accumulate those, yet it is predictable. So you will be compulsively driven by that subconscious to keep yourself in those patterns because it gets to fill in the blank about what comes next. And as you find yourself on the brink of making a new choice, now we're opening ourselves up to the possible threat in that unknown space. And now we need to understand, right, well, how capable do I am I to deal with the uncertainty stress of the unknown? And again, very few of us have that ability of stress resilience to walk into something that's uncomfortable, to tolerate the discomfort in my mind and body and to stay grounded anyway. That's the place where most of us shift back into that those habits of self-betrayal, those old familiar ways of being that are predictable, even if they're counterintuitive, I get to know what comes next and I inherently feel more comfortable as a result of it. So understanding that I think for some of us can relieve the shame that we've accumulated and, oh, you know, after all of these consequences of these dysfunctional self-betraying habits and behaviors. And then the second piece is to set ourselves to up to work with that resistance, to acknowledge that it'll be there because understanding that a lot of us want to make a change or feel compelled to make a change when we're at that rock bottom, when we don't feel like we can continue to live life the way we're feeling now, it's really understandable to set up an expectation that we restructure life from top to bottom starting tomorrow with this belief that if all these habits aren't working, if I just create all new habits, I'll feel better quicker. And while, you know, logically that makes somewhat of sense, what that will do to that very overwhelmed system who can't tolerate the stress of the unknown, it'll just overwhelm it. It'll create such a stressful experience that we'll be left with no option but to return to those self-betraying habits. So I will often talk about and something that we do every month in that self-healing community. One of the tools is something called a, daily, a small daily promise. So we talk about how to break down whatever new action from five new things that we're going to do starting tomorrow into one new thing because it's the consistency that is important. A, acknowledging that the second I do this one small thing, it might feel somewhat uncomfortable, 
And what's important is that I can tolerate the degree of discomfort that it feels so that I feel compelled to show up and do it again tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Because if I set up too much of change and I do too many new things at once and I feel too overwhelmed, then I run the risk of returning right back to those old habits that I've once learned to deal with that overwhelm. And then chances are I'm not going to show up tomorrow to try and do it again. So becoming conscious again of resistance as being a natural part of change. We're not wired to want to change. Their safety in those habitual patterns might relieve the shame. And then we could set ourselves up to work with that resistance. Anticipate it's being there. It's not any indication that you're wrong, that you're broken, that this isn't the direction for you to go in. It's a natural byproduct of our evolutionarily wired nervous system. And to set yourself up to succeed by just giving yourself the opportunity to do one new thing because it will be uncomfortable. And then in that moment, you'll be increasing that ability to deal with more and more discomfort over time. Almost all of my heroes were incrementalists in terms of people who made change in the world. And there's such a romantic idea of like revolution and instant change and like change it all at once. And many times it's just a recipe for disaster. I've, I've seen some rapid transformations, but nine times out of 10, what I see works and working well long-term is small, consistent, incremental change. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's not what we want. We crave the high of trying something new. And then the, we, we also probably crave the low of the crash. You know, it's this huge stimulating experience of these intense highs and these low lows. The slow and steady route, I think, is long-term the most sustainable way. Yeah, I'll go as far too to speak from my own experience. I, I have come, I had come to learn, even talking about these habits and you know how ingrained they are. There was so much of me as a relational being that only had the experience of relating or connecting to others based around that very surface experience of stress and how that would present in my relationships. Then is I didn't necessarily bring anything outside of the most recent stressful experience to my friends when I would talk to them about what's what's going on with me. It would always be some version of complaining around what was stressful because I came to realize that that's the only way I, I knew how to connect with my family was around this shared experience of this stressful environment. It's quite literally what brought us together and resulted in this connection. Yet at the same time, desperately, and I would proclaim to my partners who weren't serving me and I would have to leave them and break up and find a new partner, I would complain to people that I don't feel connected to you. You're not able to emotionally meet me where I'm at. All I want is this deep emotional connection. And I was pointing the finger outward, holding everyone else responsible. I just picked the wrong partner. You're not emotionally deep enough for me. Check, check, check. Let me find the person who will meet me what, where I am at, only to over time realize that I wasn't actually bringing anything beyond surface stress into any of my relationships. So I was holding someone responsible for an emotional connection or a depth of emotional connection that. I wasn't even bringing to the table. I didn't quite honestly know myself beyond the stress that I was very familiar with to bring my deeper emotional world, to allow someone to connect with me emotionally. Because as counterintuitive as might sound to hear, in that childhood where I did not have that in any of my family members, connection in and of itself felt unsafe because I never had that familiar, I never had the ability to become familiar with being emotionally close to someone. So moving emotionally close to someone now, even current day, there's a remnant of it that feels unfamiliar and uncomfortable. And if I'm not careful, will give me that enough resistance or discomfort 
to move away again, not to share what I'm really thinking, not to become vulnerable and tell my partner when there's something deeper going on, to stay stuck in that surface cycle of stress, because again, that had become my familiar. Yet at the same time, I had this depth of longing for something more. And until I realized that I have to play a role in that, I have to be connected to what's more below there. And then I have to feel safe enough to share. And then I have to feel safe enough to receive the connection that you actually new person, partner, friend, whoever might be available to give me. And all of that will be unfamiliar and new. So it will feel scary. I'll feel vulnerable. I might feel compelled to run away like I often do, not showing, only focusing on the surface stuff. And that's the moment where I have to expand into that discomfort and understand where it's coming from and give myself the opportunity to actually build that emotional closeness and connection that I've been searching for. One of the beautiful things that your first book covers that is important, and it's also a tough one to breach with your friends, which is why it's so important to to build community and to set up relationships where it's safe to give and receive feedback, is emotional addiction and getting stuck and attached to certain emotions that probably on the outside don't seem like you would be like there's no inherent value in being addicted to being miserable or to being a victim or to rehashing these things that happened to you 10 years ago or 20 years ago or five years ago in the case of me like i am a i am a victim i have a huge victim problem i need to get rattled often when i'm going back there because i have stories that'll get any therapist on board with my mediocrity if i need to So to actually work with people and say, I will tell you things that will make you want to let me off the hook and I need you to not let me off the hook. But it's one of those things that if you're trying to communicate that with somebody, it can, it can be just way too painful. You can get people that snap at you really quickly if you're trying to work with it. So when you approach the emotional addiction and when you approach somebody who's maybe kind of stuck with the familiar feelings that for whatever reason they now are convinced is them and who they're going to be for the rest of their life. What's that gentle way to start to create that crack where I think in some sense, I want everyone, I want the listeners of this show in particular to honor where they've been, to also have a healthy balance with what's possible as well. It's almost like it's a balancing beam where if that arrow is too front heavy, it's going to hit the ground. If the feathers aren't big enough, it's not going to stabilize. How do you say, hey, I really want to honor every experience you've been through, but that's not the reality. That's a reality. That's everything that you've gathered up until now, but there is more for you. How do you hold that? I think you're, you're beautifully describing that expansion, right? In the moment where we can allow, you used the word earlier that I want to revisit, all of the parts the past part, the past meaning, the past habits, and the possibility right, for something different in the future. And this actually goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about understanding the function. And I'll use my own example of being, you know, I have very much a quote unquote victim mode, if you will, very similar the way you're describing it in my own self, but mine looks like complaint-based. And what I mean when I say that is I will notice some myself going about my day, having particular moments, having particular days where I'll notice myself complaining, turning to my partners, talking about everything that I have to do and how stressed I'm feeling. And now what I understand, this is how I can have that pivot. 
looking back, I've understood, I've self-explored, I explored the dynamics in my family, just like I was describing. I've come to see how, for me, that is a marker. That complaint is a habit I learned typically to receive connection, to connect with those around me based out of a need, right? So now I can use that focal point. And when I catch myself shifting into, I'm going to call it complaint mode now, right? Kind of victimizing myself, all the things that are wrong in this given moment. Now I don't have to shame myself because I have information. I can view this as, oh, okay, Nicole, here's that cycle again. What does it mean? And now I have the ability to drill down and understand that for me personally, my habit, I revert to that older habit of complaining, usually when I'm having an unmet need, when maybe my physical resources are diminished, are decreased, and I, I am overly stressed and I'm pushing myself beyond my physical limits. So I'm complaining because it's really my body saying, Nicole, you don't have the resources to be doing all of the things you're expecting to do. I also have another piece of information again, because like I was just describing for me, that was my emotional connection was based in stress. This idea of emotional addiction in my you know, family that we shared, that was how we bond it in childhood. So now I also have the possibility that it might not be a physical need that I'm having in that moment that's resulting in me using that old habit of complaining. I might be needing emotional connection with someone. I might be needing a moment of presence. I might be needing a moment to actually drill down and say, you know what? It's not about the stress that I'm feeling about the surface stuff. I'm feeling disconnected from you. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling like, you know, I want us to have a bonded moment. I'm having a need. Maybe I just want some support. Maybe I want to share with you the deeper stuff. Maybe it's not about the stress that is on the surface. Maybe I have some anger, some grief, something else coming up. So simply in the moment, we can expand and allow all of it, all of our parts to be present. Informed by our past, I can now see these habits as a point of curiosity, as information. And I can now have the ability to see what's really going on for myself in that moment because I've been able to identify, like I said, that usually for me when I'm in that old cycle, it's because there is something real. I am having a very real unmet need. It's just not what I think it is. And if I give myself that opportunity, then I might be able to make that new choice to meet my needs in a different way. Maybe to ask for support about what's really emotionally going on for me as opposed to just me complaining about all the things I have to do that I don't want to do. I think that's why you gather people. And that's why community is so important to me is like, gather humans and belong to one another mm -hmm. and help each other and create relationships where it's okay to give each other feedback. I think the book that I read, How to Do the Work, is a great book to read as a group and to read slowly, to read it, you know, really slowly and to go over it chapter by chapter, which is why I think our book club is going to have to do it. And, you know, mm -hmm. I generally want to do 10 pages a day. So let's meet once a week and we'll do 70 pages. I think we're going to slow it way, way, way down. Because uh, it's it's dense. I have three questions. I, you've been so generous with your time. Is it okay if I ask these last three? Absolutely. I'm here okay. for you, One of them is from a patron, who the people who keep me going. Thank you, guys. Mm -hmm. I love you all so much. Um, this is from Karen. I would love to continue to grow in my knowledge of how to help my son, almost 10, who has mild ADHD slash situational anxiety. Yeah. How do you approach minors? Yes. with with symptoms of, of ADHD and anxiety. Yeah. So any, any whatever symptom, uh, you know, a child is having, any version of the question that I get similar to this from a parent, how do I help my child? 
um, in whatever direction it is that we that we imagine or witness them needing help. I think I often give an answer that isn't necessarily always expected, and it's not going to be a instructive in a sense to what to do or a prescription, if you will, about what to do or not do with your child in a very direct way. I will always invite the parent to shift focus to themselves um, because our child's ability to feel safe in their self-expression, to come to us when they are overwhelmed by anxiety or ADHD symptoms or whatever it might be, really has more to do with ourself and how balanced and grounded and we are in our body, how available we are to be that support to our child. So we I will always talk about, you know, focusing on how the parent is showing up. What is being modeled? How do you navigate your emotions? How available are you when your child is feeling whatever degree of anxiety it is? And how present can you be with yourself? Because so much of what we're communicating to our children is not like the old adage, right? Do as I say, not as I do. Children are by far more greatly impacted by what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. And if you're saying one thing and you're not showing up as that safe, grounded, you know, human, that secure base to help a child go from overwhelming emotions back into safety, then what you say isn't, isn't going to impact them. Your lack of safety will impact them. Your inability to tolerate your own maybe anxiety, if this is the conversation or what you're seeing in your child, is going to be what is going to impact them. So for any parent out there, it's Again, really doing the work, becoming conscious, becoming conscious of what your relationship is with your emotions, your anxiety in particular, and giving yourself the ability to be that grounded presence because it's very difficult, especially when we're having a child who's dysregulated around us to stay grounded in our safety in that presence. Those are the moments where, I mean, even according to this whole conversation, we become very likely as a human, outside of the fact that we have a child very well intentionally that we want to be present for, we're a human first. And if our nervous system doesn't feel safe, if our child's emotions feel overwhelming to us because we can't navigate our own emotions, if we're being honest, then we're not going to be able to be that conscious, grounded presence in those moments to help our children. We're going to be reactive. We're going to be habitual. We're going to be doing what we often have learned to do or what we at one point have learned to do when we don't feel safe. So for any parent out there, it's a tall order to be a parent. It's incredibly difficult to show up in service of another human. And it really does begin with how are you showing up for yourself? Mm. As somebody who works with kids too, I want to point out that situations matter. And that's something to look at because I teach outdoor education. Uh, it's like my sanity job. And when I take these kids out into the wilderness, um, the situations matter. And so if they're having a hard time focusing in the classroom, it might be that the classroom sucks as well. It might not be the child. It might be the situation because I've seen kids who are difficult kids really thrive in the woods and, you know, and it's like, okay, I've, I, my heart broke that these guys and girls were going to get sat down in a, in a seat for eight hours when it's just like, you guys are meant to be working with your hands or you, it's mostly young boys, but there's some girls, but you know, you this is a kid who is supposed to be ripping and roaring and making things with their hands. And of, of course they appear like they're not, you know, they're not getting with the program. They're not made for that program. So sometimes, you know, I know that there are true cases of ADHD, but sometimes the child is, is just not responding well to a situation that, you know, who would? 
I could agree more. I mean, in terms too of even our our societies, which begin with, you know, childhood educational system, there's a lot of unnatural aspects of it. Like you're sharing the expectation that anyone, child or adult, sit for the amount and that we all fit into this cookie cutter idea of structured standardized education. And of course, I understand to some extent why we felt the need to have, you know, a system that's standardized and we can know when you graduate from one grade and go to the next it really does us a disservice because we are unique. And those environments, I think, is becoming clear to so many of us. Even my partner, Lolly, um, struggled you know, for a very, very long time with ADD-like symptoms and was carried such severe trauma from her school experiences on how shamed she was because the reality of it was she didn't fit into that standardized, structured environment. I have obviously the complete opposite experience where that allowed me to be my safe zone where I excelled and I kept my, right? And she carries such trauma because she's brilliant. And now that she's out of that system and able to you know, be herself and embrace who she is, she's able to see how much it wasn't a function of her and her limitations. It was trying to right put that square peg into that, that round hole. And so many children and even adults and are probably even carrying the shame from that mismatch. And again, I could go as far to say outside of school, there's a lot of systems in our current society that are unnatural for humans, even living in cities on top of each other. Like I know I did for decades of my life is really different to say the least than how we kind of evolved as a species. So I think these conversations, and I'm grateful to see that they're being had, I think, more globally, even seeing unschooling movements and different ways. Of course, if you have the resources to, you know, accommodate the individualized needs of our children is so, so hopeful. Um, and my hope is that somewhere down the line, these more kind of structural, overarching institutionalized systems also to begin to change, to be a little more aligned with us as unique humans who are never going to fit into the same box as everyone else. Yeah, I'm very much of the Spartan sit your butt in the chair and get it done. And my business partner and best friend, Reese, has taken a, an approach here in this office that is very different, much more <laughs> compassionate. And so when I don't feel like sitting down and writing, he'll just say, okay, I'm just going to film you. Can you just tell me? And we'll we'll film it and I'll talk and then we'll replay it. And I'll go, okay, now write down all the parts that you like and just leave the uh -huh. parts that you don't. Or we work in a lot of post-its now because I hate sitting at computers. And for him to have the love for me to go, yeah, you know what? I think there's a way for us to get the exact same outcome that you want, which is a nicely written piece, but in a way that you don't hate every step of the way. And so let's try post-its. Let's try recording yourself. Let's try doing these things. And sometimes the situation just sucks and you need to try different. You need to try putting yourself in different situations. So here's another question, um, and this is the last patron question from Colleen, which is, how do you work on self-forgiveness over mistakes and damage you inflicted on your kids who are now adults before you realized your own damage that you carried and how that influenced your parenting? And this is, a, this is a big one for changing generations because I had my son at 19. He's 13 now. The way I've grown as a father has changed drastically. And there is that want to go, man, I wish I could have given him the first five years with who I am now. And maybe that's his hero's journey is to do that with, with his children if he has them. But it is so brutal. Forgiveness. We, we come upon that concept at so many different places of our journey. Oftentimes, like you're sharing, Sam, relate it to children. And when we begin to come to the awareness or have new information, I think it's really natural 
to go back and have those woulda, shoulda, couldas wishes coming again, of course, from a very, very well-intentioned place. I think that one of the gifts of a healing journey, of becoming conscious, everything we've been talking about of all of our habits and patterns, many of which have been passed on for generations, is that compassion. When we see, right, how we once showed up for however long that it once was as more of a function of what we were taught, how we were conditioned, again, our best attempt maybe at creating safety in a really overwhelming, if not outward, traumatic environment and experiences that we've lived, we might be able to then gift ourselves with that compassion, see what we did not as a function of who we are or what we want or our intention, but as a function of what we once felt we had to do. And then, of course, because a lot of times when we are looking back, again, we're in our mind, we're revisiting, we're going back in time to a place that we can't change. So really acknowledging that it's it's been done. One of my partners, Jenna, says we can't undo it. It's been done, right? We can't go back in time. Allowing yourself maybe space to feel all of the feelings that you feel. Maybe you feel grief. Maybe you feel angry. Maybe some of it is about your own, you know, experiences and limitations and things you were taught that didn't allow you to be different at that one period of time. All of that is important too. Allow yourself to feel as you do about all of the experiences, all of the different ways that you showed up, but at some point really making that commitment to focus on what you can do now. Because like Jenna always teaches, you can't go back, right? We're not going to be able to have the ability to time machine and change and be different, but we do have the ability to create change now. And I know a lot of parents, as you watch children age into adulthood, we do think that, oh, well, now all is lost. We can't change the relationship we have with these children or whoever it is that we've been in a long-term relationship with. And the reality of it is we can create change at any time. So if we stop expending all of our energy wishing we could go back, all of our energy imagining things that were different, and we just look at consciously how we're showing up now, we begin to implement those small daily promises where we're changing the way we're showing up now. I have many people in my community, in the membership, paid or unpaid, the general community that have been shifting relationships with adult children now into years in the future because they're focusing on what they can change, which is how can I show up differently now? Can I give myself that compassion, understanding it's of no ill intent, nothing is wrong, I did what I did because I only has it, had this limited amount of information, now I have more information. Can I apply this new awareness by making a new choice and can I do so consistently enough that I actually do gift myself and my children or whoever it is, my loved one, with a new relationship over time? Because that and hearing from those people who are experiencing and having myself, my family relationships are structurally changing and continue to change to this day. Can I show up differently and give myself a new relational experience into the future? I got the inspiration a couple of weeks ago to like a, a nudge from a, a loving friend to work on the relationship I have with my mom, which is funny if you know me personally, because you know my mom and I are, are really close, but we've inflicted so much damage on each other over the years. I was an addict for 10 years as a teenager. I was very much like a fuck you teenager, you know, fuck you mom. That caused a lot of pain. And then she was a single mom raising, you know, raising me with very little money. That caused a lot of so we just have this like really messy existence where everybody really was doing the best they can, but everybody's got a lot of scars. And I went like two weeks ago and I just said, I just sat down and I said, what could we do to heal this relationship? And she said, Well, what do you mean? We have a great relationship. And I said, just hold on, just hold on to that. You know, hold on to that. I'll hold on to that. 
And then last week she wrote, um, she wrote me a text and she said, um, she's in a uh, 12 step as am I. And, and she said, okay, I'm getting ready for a ninth step. I'm on eighth step. Do you want to, you want to talk about some of the pain that I've caused you? And it, it, the reverse will be true where she'll get to tell me some of the pain that she caused me. But it, you know, I really felt like our relationship is what it is, which is 90% better than most people's relationship with their parents. But to have that inspiration to say, no, 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 no. I really want to take this healing to the next level. I'm going to go into the dragon's lair, you know, into the one area that I don't want to touch because it's, it's quote unquote good enough and to see what's possible and see if that, see if we can make some more movement there. That's incredible. I'm celebrating both you and your mom for, for those daily commitments that you're making for yourself because, you know, to see about it is already risking all of that unfamiliarity, the uncertainty, not actually knowing what happens and how it feels as it maybe shifts and changes as you connect differently or in different areas. And, you know, all of that is vulnerable as much as, again, like I said, I was of two minds, all I desperately want it, right? Yet in the lived experience of it, it was new, it was unfamiliar, it was new territory. So anytime I hear families, any sort of relationship working to build a new, I like to just celebrate that because I know that it is a vulnerable space to be um, and it is something to celebrate. So before I do the final question, I just want to know, is, is How to Meet Yourself a workbook? Yes. So how to, how to Meet Yourself is a full workbook. It grew out of after having, as I was writing, I should say, how to meet, how to do the work. I was very aware of, I mean, even just as the context of the conversation we're having, we can only see what we can only see. We are that blinded horse. And some question I often get met with is, well, I don't even really know how I'm stuck. I know I'm stuck. But I don't really know. Is it my body? Is it my beliefs? Right? Is it my inner child wounding? What is making my stuck? What what is keeping me stuck? And so the the seed of inspiration really grew out into I felt it best served by a workbook where I take readers or I have the roadmap, which is how to meet yourself, the workbook for readers to begin their own journey of that self-exploration, giving them the places to turn the spotlight. We begin with our physical body, all the habits that might be keeping us dysregulated and stuck. Then we pull back a layer and really explore our emotional world, all of those you know, standardized meanings and narratives that we continue to apply that might not be serving us in our relationships until finally we give ourselves the space to begin to explore who we are. And again, the tools are very similar to the tools that I talk about day in and day out. But of course, this will be much more structured, much more of a deep dive into all of the different places we can turn that spotlight so that we can take those two steps, becoming conscious of the habits that don't serve us. And of course, within the pages of the workbook are many tools to create the safety, to shift out of those old narratives and to create this ultimate space so that we can answer that very big question that you started with. Who are you? right? Learning how to tune into and rediscover for all of you out there, wherever you are on the journey, who it is that is that being that's driving the ship. And does that come out tomorrow? It comes out tomorrow, December 6th. Okay. So that, that for those of you listening to this, the day of, it came out last Tuesday. I will already own it by the time you're listening to this. And I can't wait to, to get my hands on it. So, Nicole, I, I so appreciate your time. I just want to say I have my own stuff with really well-known people because of the, the world that I grew up with. And I saw a lot of people who were celebrities and well-known 
not in integrity. And I just have to say that the journey of getting to know you through your work and now getting to know you through conversation is such a pleasure. You have a lifelong fan in me. And the, the book that I read in, in prep, How to Do the Work, is fantastic. It's, it is a library more than a book. So thank you for that. This is my final question, which I always put a little twist on. But for you, I'm going to do it a, a very specific way because I'm interested about what's still on the table for you and what still gets you up in the morning each day. So if I was to stand up right now and you from 10 years from now was to take my place in this seat and to talk to you and to give you a small message that you could carry with you, you could replay it if you wanted to, but it would be who the person that you're growing into and are going to be 10 years from now would say to who you are today to keep you going. What is the ask of who you are today? What is that future version of you? ask of you and want of you and how do they want you to show up and what do they want you to do and be? It's actually, I was going to first thank you for your very, very kind words. Even hearing you say the word kind of alignment and integrity is, is so much and it's going to lead me into the answer of this question because for me, being in alignment with, you know, who I am, what I think and expressing that is so much an integral part of my journey. I've come to the realization of all the different ways I would censor, modify, like we talked about, not be who I was for many different reasons. And really creating the safety in my own self to embody and live in that alignment is my forever goal on this here earth journey that I'm on. So that will be that would be the reminder that I'm always, I offer to myself daily, which is to be for me, it's remaining connected to that internal landscape. And my anchor point for that personally is always my heart because I'm of the belief that we all have an inner guidance system, our intuition, our compass, whatever you want to call it. I think it speaks to us from that deeper you know, area. I, I like to locate it you know, between my heart and my gut, kind of always indicating and giving me those pings of guidance that I need. So while I can't predict I can't necessarily look into the future. It is unknown for all of us. I think one of the most difficult things to tolerate as a human is we don't actually get to know what comes next or what tomorrow brings or how it even is to age in a human body. This is all new. What I can rest assured in is that if I continue to maintain that connection to that deeper space of guidance for me, I've now developed the trust and the confidence that I will always walk in that direction of alignment. If I give myself the opportunity to drop in and to not only acknowledge what my truth is, but to be vulnerable and to take the risk to express that outward, to follow what it is that I'm hearing internally and to be that person then in the world around me, then I can rest assured that whatever the journey looks like 10, 20, 30 years from now, that I will be doing so in that aligned way, which like I said, is so much a core part of my journey because I'm of the belief that that's that's who we really are, is that deeper, intuitive, connected human that many of us might not be living in our habits and patterns, but that is possible, that we are capable of. If we, again, begin to peel back all of these onions, we can then reconnect with that internal guidance of, of ourself. Thank you so much for your time, Nicole. Thank you so much, Sam, for having me. I'm really grateful that we've had this opportunity to sit down and have this conversation. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. I'm glad you made it this far. If you could take a few moments of your time and help us out, share this episode with a friend or a family member or somebody who you think would also enjoy this episode as you have. It might be a great way to start a conversation or help each other 
on your healing journeys. And we really appreciate you sharing this and helping this program grow and its reach and influence expand. So thank you for even considering that. You could write us a review on iTunes, which is always a sweet way to basically send us a love letter. I read them all. If you love this show and you would like to help us keep doing more and keep offering more offerings, please consider going to www.patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash howtohuman. The more money we have a month to produce this show the more options that are available to us we can fly guests in for in-person interviews which i always think are a little bit deeper we can hire people to help us in terms of putting on extra events or extra offerings and we can reinvest in ourselves and make this program even better so oh and (laughs) we can pay ourselves for doing this which would also be fantastic if you'd like to join us join our Patreon. We do community events. We do a book club. We do study halls. We do just regular human hangouts. And I think if you like the program, you'll like hanging out with us as well. So lots of love. I hope you have a great day. And until next time, bye everybody.